0: Welcome back to my channel. My name is Dana Trubiana and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like fashion. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. It is possible that this is coming out after Tuesday. I did get a really, really late start this week. I've had a lot going on, so it's possible that it's going to come out on Wednesday or Thursday this week. If that's the case, I'm sorry, but it'll definitely come out this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I love you so much, and I can't even thank you enough for all of the love and support that I've been showered with. Before I start talking about tonight's episode, usually I give you guys a sneak peek of my sweater because I love the sweaters that I wear. Well, this time I, you know, I have a red-pink sweater on. There's nothing special there, but I wanted to show you this. Oh. My. God. Tell me this is not the cutest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. They're little bears! Look at the little bears! I would cuddle with this at night, okay? And I get to wear it on my feet. And look, it's got little handles so you can put it on. See? And then you go, and it just goes on. It's so easy and I love it so much! I used to have a pair of wolf slippers, but my stupid dog took it and chewed it up and left it in the backyard. He didn't even have the decency to leave my slippers' remains in the house. So I've gotten a new pair, and they're pink bears, and I love them, and I wanted to share them with you guys. Tonight's episode is gonna be a doozy because it's one of a set that I've promised to make for a while now. For a long time now, I've been promising to revisit the first four mobsters that I ever covered. Lucky Luciano, John Gotti, Al Capone, and Albert Anastasia. Because the originals of the first four episodes that I made were honestly trash like they were really bad I had just gotten started making videos I had a $20 camera I had no idea how to talk on camera I was super awkward I was super shy I was super weird and honestly I really didn't have enough knowledge about the mafia as a whole to be covering these giants in the mafia I already made the new episodes about Lucky Luciano and John Gotti and today we're gonna be going back through Al Capone. So go ahead, get your breakfast. If you're listening later, go get your dinner, get your wine or your beer or whatever you're sipping on or munching on and get yourself comfy because we're gonna go ahead and get started. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born on January seventeenth, 1899. His parents immigrated from Italy in 1893, so he was born in America. His father Gabriel was a barber, and his mother Teresa was a seamstress. They were both born in Angri, a commune outside of Naples in the province of Salerno. His parents had nine children together. Yes, you heard that right nine children. They settled in Park Slope, Brooklyn, when Al was 11 years old. The couple had seven boys in a row. After that spout of boys, they had two daughters. They had Vincenzo, who the family called James, and I'm also seeing being referred to as Richard, I don't know why, in 1892, and Ralph in 1894, and both of those boys were born in Italy. The family immigrated to America I see 1893, but then they say that Ralph was born in 1894 and that he was born in Italy, so I'm thinking that maybe the family immigrated in 1894, I'm not really sure. Either way, they immigrated to America with both Richard and Ralph. And then they had Frank in 1895, they had Al in 1899, and then they had Umberto in 1906. That was it for the boys, and then they had a daughter named Ermina in 1901. She sadly passed away in 1902 at only a year old, and then they had Mafalda in 1912. All of the Capone children were sent to a very strict, pariahical Catholic school. The Capones tried to raise their family right. They participated in church events, they did fundraisers, they fed the poor, they had a decent amount of money. This family is not giving the type of family that Al Capone would come from. Although Al showed promise as a student, he didn't last very long in school. He had trouble with authority and just absolutely refused to follow rules and he got expelled from school at 14 years old after he assaulted a female teacher. After he got expelled from school, he worked at a candy shop, he worked at a bookbindery, and he even worked at a bowling alley before beginning his career as a semi-professional baseball player. In 1916, he got onto the team of St. Michael's, a semi-pro team in Brooklyn. He played first base and was a pitcher. His older brother, Ralph, also played on the same team. The brothers formed the Al Capone Stars in 1918, another semi-pro team. The team would regularly make headlines in local Brooklyn newspapers, Oftentimes, the newspapers would refer to Capone as Capone or Carponi, which led to Capone's involvement in baseball at all remaining a secret until just recently. Like, nobody had any idea that this dude had, like, this secret penchant for professional baseball. And until there was someone, like, recently, like, I'm talking within the last 30 years, until someone was, like, looking at a newspaper and was like, holy shit, that's Al Capone. Nobody knew because everybody pronounced his name wrong which i think is so cool like imagine being that guy that's sitting there and looking at a newspaper and is like oh shit, that baseball player is al capone and nobody has any idea and you're the one to break the case capone gave up baseball in 1918 when his then girlfriend may got pregnant al capone's son albert francis sunny capone was born on december 4th 1918 Al started working for Frankie Yale at the Harvard Inn, a restaurant that Yale owns. This bar and brothel in Coney Island would be Capone's first employment under a criminal, and this is pretty much how he gets into the life. Frankie Yale was one of Brooklyn's largest bootleggers during Prohibition, and he took Capone under his wing when he was only 18 years old. He gave him a job at the Harvard Inn, and he had him doing everything at the restaurant from bouncing to bartending, he would wash dishes, he would wait tables, this boy just knew every single inch of this restaurant and how to run it. While he was here, Al started to build a pretty strong reputation in the town. It was said that the patrons really liked him, but that his eyes would bear a kindly, humorous glint, and then flash to ferocity at a moment's notice. Even though he was like, Fun loving, he had times that he would jump on the dance floor. He would just like quickly go from zero to a hundred and switch to this violent, nasty person. And even though that went on, it did actually come in handy because there was a lot of really nasty fights breaking out at the restaurant pretty often, and some of them even ended up deadly. So Capone, having this violent streak and knowing how to fight and being able to switch it on at a moment's notice, ended up working in his favor. Only four days after his son was born, Capone was working at the Harvard Inn, the restaurant that he had started working at. Frank Galuccio, a gangster that was in the area and pretty well known, and his sister Lena came into the bar to have some food and drinks. He's also 5'10", so Frank Galuccio, walking in at 5'6", 148 pounds, Capone is not worried about Galuccio in the least bit. Like, he's got height, he's got weight on him, he works at the place, this is his home territory, he's just not somebody that he's concerned with. Capone found Lena, Galuccio's sister, absolutely enchanting, and he, like, love at first sight loved this girl. As he's waiting tables, he is... Being a little creeper, he just like keeps coming over to the table and he'll like flirt with her and throw her a few compliments, but Lena is not at all whatsoever interested. She's like, no thank you, get the F away from me. But like a true man, Capone was not swayed by her nose and this went on all night. He just kept harassing her. She would ask him to stop, and it just, it went in one ear and out the other. He would not listen. Now, Lena goes over to her brother Galluccio, and she tells him, like, listen, this dude is harassing me. I don't want you to get into a fight. I don't want you to do anything crazy, but is there any way that you could, like, Go to him and maybe ask him to just leave me alone. Like, I'm just tired of being hit on. I don't want anything to do with him, and I just want you to, like, get it across to him, because obviously me saying it isn't working. When Lena goes to Galluccio and tells him this, he is wasted. Now, Galluccio has this whole situation on his radar. He didn't even realize it was happening all night, but now that Lena went up to him and told him, like, yo, this is what's going on, now it's on his radar. So when Capone goes up to Lena and says loud enough for the entire restaurant to hear, you got a nice ass, honey. I mean that as a compliment, believe me. The entire restaurant goes silent because Galluccio makes it very clear that this pissed him off. Now, Galluccio is an Italian gangster and he's really well known in Brooklyn. He's got a reputation. And we all know that the ultimate disrespect to any Italian gangster is to insult their family, their wife, their sister, their mother. You just do not do it. With absolute strangers in the bar hearing this insult, now Frank has to do something. He's kind of backed into a corner. Like, I'm sure he's looking at Capone and he's like, this dude, he's got some weight on me, he's got some height on me, and probably about to get my ass beat. But... I'm a gangster in this town, I can't just let that slide. I'm gonna get made fun of for the rest of my goddamn life if I don't do something here. So he goes to Capone and he's like, yeah, you need to apologize, that was super messed up, you crossed the line, go to her and apologize right now. So Capone approaches him and he's like, listen dude, like I don't want no beef, he's all calm, his demeanor is not trying to fight whatsoever. He goes up to him, the two men have a few words between them, and at the end of these words, for some reason, Frank ends up throwing a punch. Now, we know Capone goes from 0 to 100 real quick, and his rage kicked in. And he goes after Frank, and Frank is scared. Frank is like, I'm about to die right now, like this guy is gonna kill me. So he pulls out a pocket knife, and he goes for Capone's throat. He slashed him three times, but obviously he didn't kill him. But what he did do was leave really deep gashes on the side of his face, and this incident right here would give him a nickname that he would carry for the rest of his life, Scarface. After he was stabbed multiple times, he was rushed to Coney Island Hospital, and he got 30 stitches in the side of his face. Now Capone is pissed his face is marked for the rest of his life like he knows i'm about to go through the rest of my life with these big ass scars on the side of my face i am going to kill this mother bleeper. Galluccio starts to hear around town that some cut up bruiser is looking for him on the street but Galluccio he ain't no punk either he's a member of the Genovese family this is before the Castello war this is before The families were even created, but what would go on to become the Genovese family? Galluccio is a member of that. So he's like, all right, I don't really got too much to worry about. I'm a made guy. Everybody knows better than to lay their hands on a made guy. I don't give a shit who this guy is. He's not touching me. But as much as like, okay, yeah, he's a made guy. He's still pretty low level in the family. He's pretty new to being made. He he doesn't... He doesn't have a lot of juice, and he starts getting worried when members of Yale's crew that are in a lot higher places than he is start showing up at the places that he goes to a lot. He got really scared, and he went to his friend Albert Alterio for help. Alterio decides to bring Galluccio to the two guys that are kind of leading the Mafia at the time. And he goes and has a sit-down with Joe Masseria and Lucky Luciano. Both bosses agreed that a sit-down was in order and something has to be figured out here. They set up a meeting at the Harvard Inn between Luciano, Masseria, Frankie Yale, Galluccio, and Capone. While they were there, they decreed that no more blood would be spilled on either side of this fight. They did agree that Capone was in the wrong and that nobody should insult another man in front of his own family and get away with it. They did order Galluccio to apologize to Capone, and then they ordered Capone to stop seeking revenge. Gluccio said that he did apologize profusely and that he actually meant it, especially after he saw the cuts on Capone's face. He said he was really sorry for what he had done to him, and later, Al apologized to Galluccio, admitting that he was wrong when he insulted Lena in such a public way. Capone would follow the instructions that were given to him at that meeting for the rest of his life, and he never once sought revenge on this dude. After he rose to power later in life, He even went as far as hiring Galluccio as a bodyguard when he would come to New York, and he would pay an astronomically high salary of $100 a week, which is, like, cha freaking ching Now, these scars that Capone got, they contributed to his little tough guy persona, you know, like, it helped him come across as... Someone that had been around the block. But at the same time, Capone really hated these scars. He was really self-conscious about them. He would apply baby powder to kind of diminish the appearance of the scars, but it didn't really help that much. He went through his life getting mad at a lot of photographers because they would take pictures of the left side of his face, and he would even cover the scars if he knew he was having a picture taken. So he would like... He also really hated the nickname Scarface, and he would tell reporters that he got his scars from a German machine gunner in the trenches of World War I, but he didn't actually serve in World War I. But at the time, they don't have a way to prove that, so it's like, oh, okay, you so say you were in World War I, you were in fucking World War I, okay, cool. Up until this point, Capone had been in a lot of gangs. He joined his first gang when he was only like 15 or 16 years old the South Brooklyn Rippers. Soon after that, he was initiated into the 40 Thieves Junior, a junior version of the Five Points Gang, which I know we've all heard about. After that, he joined the Bowery Boys, the Brooklyn Rippers, And then he joined the Five Points Gang. At 18 years old, Capone married the mother of his child, May Josephine Coughlin, on December 30th, 1918. They were both under the age of 21 and needed written permission from their parents to get married. And obviously, they have a kid together. They've been together a while. Their parents had no problem signing off on it. But I actually didn't know that, that you needed a signature to get married before the age of 21 back then, because now you can hit 18 years old, and the day you hit 18, you can go off and get married. But not back then. Back then, you had to be 21 years old to get married. In 1919, James Big Jim Colosimo, whose actual name is Vincenzo. It never made sense to me how the frick James came about, but Big James Colosimo hired Johnny Torrio to work for him. Big Jim is the crime boss of Chicago, and Johnny Torrio went to work for him as his enforcer. Torrio invited Capone to join the operation, so he left New York and headed to Chicago to be a bouncer at the brothel that Torrio is working at. This brothel is actually where Capone got syphilis which is ultimately the thing that took him down. He died of syphilis. He did not seek treatment for the disease, which would obviously come back to haunt him later. I don't really know what they could have done, though. Penicillin hadn't been invented yet, so I don't know how they would have treated syphilis, even if he had sought out treatment. But, I don't know. I feel like he could have tried. He could have done something. They had to have treated it somehow. I don't know how they treated it, but they had to have treated it somehow, and... Doing something is better than nothing. On May 11th, 1920, Colosimo was murdered. Capone is suspected of having been involved in the murder and Torrio, the man that had initially invited Capone to go to Chicago, took over the empire. I already did a whole episode on Big Jim Colosimo, so if you're interested, go check out that episode. I'll link it below, but I am not gonna go way back over him. So what do you need to know? He was a whoremonger, he was a pimp, he owned a shit ton of brothels and prostitution houses, and he didn't want to move into bootlegging alcohol because he didn't want that smoke with the feds. Capone saw this gigantic market that they were passing up by not getting involved in bootlegging, and he knew that if Colosimo wasn't there, they would be making money hand over fist. So he made it so that he wasn't there. The end. In 1923, Capone and May purchased a house in Park Manor, Chicago for $5,500. Once Torrio took over what was essentially a Mafia family, the biggest in Chicago, Capone was the right-hand man, or what would come to be known as the consigliere. Capone purchased property in Miami, and he would frequently travel between Miami and Chicago, and he would stop in Monteagle, Tennessee during his trips because he had some business going on there as well. A lot of business was done by purchasing alcohol from bootleggers in Canada, which if you've seen the Untouchables, the scene where they're staking out the exchange on a bridge between Canada and America, that's what's going on here. Even though he did a lot of business there, one of Capone's most famous lines is, I don't even know what street Canada is on. Obviously trying to allude that he doesn't even know where Canada is. He couldn't have done business there. Don't be silly. After some time goes by, Torrio begins to pull away from the outfit a little bit. Capone is starting to feel his power more and more. He's Torrio's number two, and he starts becoming a little reckless. He's doing some crazy shit, and nobody's really calling him on it. Torio, on the other hand, is starting to become a lot more mellow. He's really into the little things in life. He's getting into his little garden that he has. He is enjoying peaceful walks with his wife. He's liking going shopping with her. They love to watch TV together. They're just like a cute old couple. And he's becoming less Mafia boss and more peaceful old man. This is probably a lot easier because he knows that he has Capone watching his back and Capone's always there making sure that everything's running smoothly. He knows he has nothing to worry about. Now there is this war that's brewing in Chicago with the Northside gang. The North Side gang had done things like torture and kill Capone's driver, they had performed multiple drive-bys, they had killed a friend of Capone's who owned a restaurant called the Hawthorne Restaurant, and they would just continually attack the outfit. The war was started when Torrio, who was normally the person that would like settle disputes, he was the peacemaker, he didn't get involved in a turf war between the North Side gang and the Jenna brothers, who were allies to Torrio. Torrio and the leader of the Northside gang, Dean O'Banion, worked together a lot in the past. They had bootlegged alcohol together, they even had an official truce in place. But it just seemed like O'Banion was just out to start beef with the outfit. Torio's outfit was making money hand over fist with their new bootlegging operation, and O'Banion was pissed that he wasn't seeing any of that income. To try to stop a war from starting, Torio turned around and he gave O'Banion a cut of some of the rackets that he had going on. He gave him an interest in a casino that he had, and he also gave him an interest in some of, like, the beer rights that he had, but O'Banion took that and fucked Torio over. He would go directly to the buyers in Torio's territory And he would tell them to stop buying from Torrio and to instead buy from him. When Torrio went to O'Banion and he's like, dude, not cool. Like, come on, don't do that. You know you're going to start a war with this shit. He's like, here, take some money from these brothels that I have and lay off my liquor line. Here's some extra money. O'Banion's like, uh, no, I don't like prostitution, so I don't want it and he just continued in his crusade to convince everyone to stop buying from Torrio and to instead buy from him, which is an act of war. Now, where the Jenna brothers were concerned, they're on the west, and they're over there, they're doing their thing, they're chilling, they're, you know, running Little Italy on the east side of Chicago, and they start doing the exact thing to O'Banion that O'Banion was doing to Torrio. They gave him a little taste of his own medicine. The Jenner Brothers go into the north side and they start talking to O'Banion's buyers and they start trying to convince them to buy from them instead of O'Banion. So O'Banion hears about this, he gets pissed, and he goes to Torio, and he's like, well, that's really mean. They're bullying me. Please do something about it. Like, make it stop. Make them stop. They're bullying me. And is like, me? You're asking me to do something about the Jenner Brothers? doing exactly what you're doing to me? I'm confused. I'm just like a little lost here. I don't understand. So he's like, no, get the fuck out of here. I'm not getting involved. Mind your business. I'm minding my business. You mind your business. I'm out of this shit. So now O'Banion is pissed. He is mad mad. He's like, I got these Jenna brothers to the West. They're trying to take my money. I got Torio who won't stop them from bullying me. Fuck all of these Italians, and he's heated. So now that we've got O'Banion nice and feisty, he has got a little separate situation going on, and he takes out a guy named John Duffy, who's like a hanger-on. He's someone that like hung around the Northside gang, but he wasn't a member. So O'Banion goes and he takes this dude out, but he doesn't want to take responsibility for that. He doesn't want his guys to get mad that he did it. He doesn't want to pay the family, whatever goes into assuming the responsibility of killing someone, he doesn't want to do it. So he goes, and he puts the word out that it wasn't actually him that killed him. It was Torrio and Capone, because he's mad at Torrio and Capone, because they're letting him get bullied. So now the rest of this gang in the Northside gang, they get pissed, because they're like, um, that dude was a loser, but he was our loser, and now we're mad that you killed him. But like meanwhile they didn't ever even know who this dude was, O'Banion just didn't want that guy around. So then O'Banion gets word from a cop that he knows that a brewery that he has interest in is about to get raided. Problem is he owns this brewery with Torrio and that's not great because when a brewery gets raided you know there's a lot of money that these guys have wrapped up in it. They they own this place. There's a lot of money there. So instead of doing, like, literally anything else, anything else, O'Banion makes the brilliant decision, and he goes to Torio, and he's like, yeah, you know what? The Jenna Brothers, they're fucking with me, and it's just, like, really messing up my mental health. Like, I think I don't really want to be in this gangster game anymore. I want out. Like, I just, I want to liquidate and go away. I don't want anything to do with crime anymore, so can you buy me out of this brewery so that I can go and take my earnings and... I'm going to move to Miami. I'm going to retire. I'm just going to go start fresh somewhere. So Torio, he's like, oh, hell yeah. You have been a goddamn headache to me since day one. I will pay anything to get rid of you. He gives him $500,000 and buys him out of the brewery. And then the next day, the cops raid the brewery. And obviously, once the cops raid a place, it is absolutely useless. So O'Banion just swindled the fuck out of Torio. Torrio also ends up getting arrested, and he had to bail himself and six of his associates out. So now he's got an indictment, he's out $500,000, he is out a brewery, and he is mad. The Jenna brothers had been trying to have O'Banion clipped for like a long time, but Torio would not let them do it because he didn't want to start a war. He's like, nah bro, chill. Like, God, you guys are always trying to kill someone. Chill. Just, just chill. Just chill. Well, now that he's gotten screwed over, he's like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. So he sets up the hit, and O'Banion is killed in his flower shop by Frankie Yale, Albert Salemi, and John Scalise. O'Banion's death left Jaime Weiss leading the gang, with Vincent Drury and Bugs Moran as the second in command. Weiss was really close with Moran, and he made it his personal mission to avenge the murder of his best friend. I'm talking, like, Such close friends that when he got the news that his friend had died, he broke down on the bathroom floor sobbing. O'Banion's death set off a war in the streets of Chicago that would last years. On January 12th, 1925, Capone pulled up to a restaurant. He is about to get out of the car and head into the restaurant when, all of a sudden, bullets start flying. Jaime Weiss, Bugs Moran, and Vincent Drucci pull a drive-by-style attack, and the driver was caught a few times. He did survive, and Capone didn't catch any bullets at all, so he's just pissed that he got shot at, but he's fine. Driver's fine. Everyone's fine. On January 24th, 1885, just 12 days later, Johnny Torrio is out for a nice little Saturday afternoon stroll with his wife, Anna. His driver, Robert Barton, pulls up to his apartment at 7106 South Clyde Avenue. And he's about to go inside and start putting all the produce away that they had just picked up at the street market. And everything is is chill. It's just a super chill, calm day that he's having. You know, it's the afternoon, he's loving his life. Torio and Anna are in the backseat of the car, because they have a driver. And they're making sure that they grab everything before they leave the car. You don't want to leave your wallet, whatever. The driver's not going to be there. So he's just running through the checklist in his head, making sure that he has everything in the car before he gets out. All of a sudden, a barrage of gunfire is raining down on this poor man. The windshield shatters in and instantly kills his driver. And Torrio hops across the back seat and drapes himself over his wife to protect her from the bullets. In protecting her, he was shot in the jaw, the lungs, the groin, the legs, and the abdomen. Which, I don't even know how the hell he was shot in the groin. How do you get shot in the groin from behind? I guess, like, maybe it clipped, like, the back of his leg? I don't know. Because he is face down over her, covering her. So, I don't know. The mechanics of it is not important. It's just my brain works a little weird now he's sitting there he's covering his wife he's riddled with bullets and he comes face to face with bugs moran this is not a drive-by these guys are walking up moran walks up to torio and puts the gun to his head and he's about to shoot him at point-blank range and just end this shit he pulls the trigger and thankfully the gun had run out of ammunition When this happens, Moran and Jaime Weiss, the other man that had been shooting the car, take off running, and they hop into a car that's driven by Vincent Jucci, and they escape. Although Torrio had caught a bunch of bullets, since Moran had run out of ammo and didn't get the chance to shoot him at point-blank range, he was able to survive the attack. After this attack, Torrio stepped down from his position of leading the Chicago outfit, and he handed the reins over to Capone. Now, if you're someone who watched Boardwalk Empire, you have the feeling that the attack on Torrio may have had something to do with Capone. They made it clear in the show that Capone wanted to have the position of leading the outfit really bad, and he knew that if Torrio was attacked, he would step down from his position and Capone would ascend. This is not the case. This is a case of adding a little civil liberty into the show and creating a little bit of mystery and illusion into a television show. Capone had absolutely nothing to do with the attack on Torrio. After handing over the reins of the outfit to Capone, Torrio retired and headed for New York, where he would spend a little time off before heading for Italy. This was after he served time for the indictment for the bootlegging that O'Banion had had him conned into. He was sentenced on February 9th to nine months in jail, and after he got out of jail, Capone came and personally escorted him to the airport where he left to Italy with his wife and mother. He stayed in Italy for a while until he returned to Chicago in the 1930s and ended up becoming a mediator for the Chicago outfit, so he just went back to his old job. Pretty much, he, it looks like he was probably the consigliere. When he handed over the reins of the outfit to Capone, it was grossing about $70 million per year in between the bootlegging, the gambling, the prostitution, it was making a crap ton of money. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, more than likely not because my brain works in weird ways, but when I heard about this, I was super confused because I was like scouring all of my old episodes that I had ever done looking for mentions of Torio, and I wasn't finding them because I knew that there was a story that had something to do with a notebook and a rat that had written a confession in this notebook and blah blah blah. I was convinced that this was Torio. That story takes place in the DiCarlo episode and lo and behold it's Tadaro, not Torio. So Tadaro is the one with the notebook and everything, so if you're having some kind of like niggling in your brain where you're trying to remember a relevant story with this guy, it might be the story about the notebook that came up in the DiCarlo episode, and that is not the same thing. Todaro does not equal Torrio. We are talking about Torrio right now. Todaro is not the same person. So the first time that I posted this video, I was really wrong about a lot of the things that I said, and that's why it was really important to me to redo the first four episodes, because I didn't know. I didn't know enough about the Mafia to be out here, like, giving summaries about people. I've done a lot of research. I found out a lot. I've learned a lot. And I can definitely say that a lot of the assumptions that I had in the past, not correct. When I posted this video the first time, I stated multiple times that Capone wasn't actually in the Mafia. He wasn't a made man, and that's why his criminal empire, the Chicago outfit, ran so differently from the regular Mafia, and why he was able to get away with doing crimes that were against the rules of the main Mafia, aka the five families in New York, or La Cosa Nostra. Capone would regularly have establishments blown up when they did not purchase alcohol from him, which is something that we know that the Mafia did not condone. It led to as many as a hundred innocent bystanders being hurt or killed, and that's the exact reason why the American Mafia had banned this practice so far back. Like, as far back as it existed, they banned doing random bombings. It makes sense why, at the time when I read about this, I thought the way I did. If I hadn't spent the next year of my life just constantly researching mafia stuff, I would still think that way, but it's not true. There were hard boundaries that the mafia usually imposed that Capone didn't stand by, but that doesn't mean that Capone wasn't in the mafia. He was. At the time, I thought that way because you can see a very extreme difference between La Cosa Nostra and the way that they operate and the way that Capone did his business. He often did business with local African Americans, he would help them find jobs and businesses, and that's not something La Cosa Nostra does. It wouldn't be too far from now in this story where we would begin to see Luciano and Masseria fight for the right to do the same exact thing, work with people from all walks of life, instead of just Sicilians in the Casella-Marisi War, and we see the underlying war between the Young Turks and the Mustache Petes. We know we've gone over that a bunch of times. So since you can clearly see that Capone is allowed to do this, and the rest of La Cosa Nostra isn't, you can see where my confusion came from. I honestly think that a lot of that just came from La Cosa Nostra in New York being led by the Mustache Petes, and the Chicago outfit is being led by Capone who has the same kind of ideas as Luciano and all the young Turks in New York but he's leading stuff and if you if you look at after Luciano took over in New York things start to get very similar to the way that Capone did it so i think it was just that Capone was able to impose his wants and his views because he was leading the family, where Luciano wasn't able to do that because there was people like Masseria, Maranzano, the old timers, the mustache peats that were around that were preventing him from putting those rules into place. While the most successful and long lasting gangsters usually would fly under the radar, they weren't very in your face, Capone was not like that. He was all too happy to wear expensive suits, flashy jewelry. He would spend copious amounts of money in fine dining, houses, hotel suites. He spent time with photographers and journalists. He would get involved with politics, and he would even influence entire council elections. Capone's family was 100% Italian. His parents had immigrated from Italy, but he was not Sicilian. However, he got involved in Sicilian affairs, and he would help Antonio Lombardo take the position of the head of the Union Siciliana, a Sicilian-American benevolent society, which seems to be a representation of the mob boss of Chicago. So if you see somebody being the leader of the Union Siciliana in Chicago, it seems like that leader of that benevolent society is also the leader of Chicago Mafia. So when he helped Antonio Lombardo take that position, he was effectively putting Antonio Lombardo in the position of leading the entire Chicago Mafia. Joe Aiello, a well-known mafioso in the Chicago area, was really upset that Capone had gotten involved in these affairs, especially because he wasn't Sicilian. Like, who is this man that has no lineage with any Sicilian who's choosing the leaders of the Union Siciliana. This man is stepping in areas that he has no business stepping. He had wanted the position leading the society. Joe Aiello wanted the position himself, and... Capone helping Lombardo take that position started a war between Aiello, Lombardo, and Capone. In response to Capone helping Lombardo step up as the leader, Aiello started to form personal and business relationships with people that were well-known enemies of both Lombardo and Capone, and he made multiple attempts on each of their lives. Aiello would continually hire hitmen and even recruit the chef at Capone's favorite restaurant to try to get him to poison him, but the chef was like, oh hell no, and the chef went back to Capone and told Capone that Aiello had requested this, and when the chef went back and told Capone about this, he had Aiello's bakery destroyed, so shit was getting serious on the streets of Chicago. When Capone had his men shoot 200 bullets into the bakery, Aiello's brother was there and he was injured. And Aiello... From that point even got more steam. He continued to put a bounty on Capone and Lombardo's head and he was just, there was no end in sight. He wanted these guys lives. At one point the bounty was up to $50,000 which would be $841,000 at today's rate. But anybody that sought to collect this bounty and go after Capone or Lombardo just started showing up dead. It was kind of like taking this job was like the Bermuda Triangle. Like, you can go, but you're probably not going to come back. Even close friends of Capone's had attempted to collect this bounty. In November of 1927, Aiello had set up drive-bys of Lombardo's home and business, but the cops got involved and arrested one of the gunmen who ratted out Aiello. So they arrested him before he was able to carry out any drive-by that was being planned, and he told the cops like, oh yeah, I was doing this for Aiello. Because he ratted Aiello out, Aiello was arrested and brought to the police station, and this is where an entire standoff was about to happen. One of the policemen gave Capone a call and was like, you will not believe who I have in a jail cell right now. So Capone is like, oh, jackpot. Money, baby. And he sends 23 gunmen to wait for Aiello to be released. And he's like, this man is not walking away with his life. I'm just, I don't even care. I don't care if it's in front of a bunch of cops. I don't care if people go to jail for murder. We are taking this man out. This is the perfect opportunity. He can't run. He can't hide. We're ending this today. Since these 23 gunmen were not in the least bit discreet about what they were doing, reporters and photographers start swarming and the precinct now has an entire crowd around and these reporters and photographers are just praying that they can get live action shots of Aiello's murder. No one's trying to stop it, they're just trying to film it. Three of Capone's gunmen get the idea that they are going to purposely get arrested. So it doesn't say what these guys did, but most likely they went up and just like randomly punched a cop in the face or something. They did something to get arrested on purpose so that they could get inside the jailhouse and let Aiello know what's going on outside because nobody's probably telling him. He's blind to this. He has no idea. Aiello went to these three gunmen and pled for mercy, and these three gunmen were like, fine, we won't kill you, but we're going to give you 15 days to figure your shit out and get out of Chicago. Aiello took this and was able to get away from the scene and all these reporters and photographers, they're all disappointed. They don't get to see somebody get killed. But Aiello takes this 15 days and he leaves with some of his brothers and he heads for New Jersey because he's like, I just don't even want this smoke right now. He was bruised but not beaten though. He did not stop there. Aiello teamed up with Bugs Moran, one of the second in command, who had recently taken control of the North Side gang because their leader had been killed. Their leader was O'Banion. We we already went over that story. I know you remember. Aiello had two of Moran's men, Frank and Peter Gusenberg kill Lombardo on a busy Chicago street on September 7th, 1928. Nobody was ever arrested for the murder, but it was very clear who killed him and why he was killed. And it's not even that surprising. Aiello had had a price on Capone and Lombardo's head for a long time, so when Lombardo showed up dead, it was kind of like, oh, okay, we expected that. We were just waiting for it to happen. It was a matter of when, not if. Aiello would, from that point, continue to seek the position as the head of the Union Siciliana. After Lombardo was killed, Pasqualino Lolardo was elevated to the spot, and Pasqualino Lolardo was a very good friend of Capone's. Again, here's Capone just meddling in stuff that he has no business of meddling in. Yes, he is a very powerful mafia member from Chicago, but he's not Sicilian. He should not be choosing the head of the Union Siciliana. This still did not stop Aiello, and he just decided screw it, what's another body? And he had Lolardo murdered as well. Honestly, this next bit, what I did was I just took my research from the first episode that I did, I reconfirmed everything, added a lot of new information, but I'm looking at this next bit and I still kind of don't believe that it's true. So when I say this, take it with a grain of salt, because I personally don't even believe it, but this is what I'm seeing from research, so I'm going to tell you there was a meeting that was set up at the Statler Hotel in Cleveland. And this meeting was set up to discuss who was going to be the next leader of the Union Siciliana. Apparently, according to all the research, Aiello decided to tell the cops about the meeting, and because he informed the cops that this meeting was happening, 23 mob figures were arrested, including Joe Perfacci and Joseph Maglioccio, during this meeting. I don't really believe this because Aiello doesn't seem the type to be a rat. He didn't even rat when he had 23 people outside with guns ready to kill him. Why would he rat now? So I don't really know. I don't know if I believe this. I don't believe it, but this is what is is said. This war was just a culmination of the one that had started with O'Banion's murder, and it led to three of the six Jennet brothers being killed in 1925. After they died, Aiello took over the area in the west where the Jennet brothers had already been operating. And this really pissed off Capone, because Capone had wanted that territory for a really long time. There was a lot of people in that territory that were operating home distilleries and Home Distilleries was a huge moneymaker. There's regular people that are making illegal alcohol in their house, and that's a lot of money to be made. So when Aiello stepped in and took control of this area that Capone wanted, that just furthered tensions between the two. Taking a break from the war, we're going to talk a little bit about other factors of Capone. Now, I wasn't a fan of him in my first video, and I'm still not a huge fan of him, and there's a few reasons for that. The main reason that I'm not a fan of Capone is that he killed a lot of innocent people for no good reason. And that's something that the real mafia stands pretty firmly against. They don't kill innocent people. And it's one of the main reasons that the public mostly respected and tolerated the mafia is that innocent people aren't showing up dead. People show up dead, you know that they're related to the Mafia, but that's not Capone's MO. Capone has no shame in killing innocent men, women, and children On completely unrelated matters that have nothing to do with his criminal enterprise, that have nothing to do with anything. These men and women and children, they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. One place that we see this senseless killing is in the murders that he committed in regard to his political affiliations. One politician that he threw his support behind was William Hale Thompson. Thompson was running for mayor of Chicago. Thompson was very important to Capone because he had promised to reopen illegal saloons, so Capone is like, oh hell yeah, and he supports him as much as he could and does everything that he can to see this man become the next mayor. He even made a $250,000 donation to his campaign. Like, Capone was stopping at nothing to make sure that this guy is elected the next mayor of Chicago. One of Thompson's rivals, Joe Esposito, was killed in front of his house in a drive-by shooting during the election. I think we can all guess why that happened and who was responsible for that. In areas that Thompson was expected to lose, voting booths would regularly be bombed and that led to the death of at least 15 innocent voters and it terrified people into not going out and voting at all in Chicago that day. The bombings were carried out by one of Capone's soldiers, James Castro. James Pelcastro Castro was not the greatest man. He was also accused in the murder of Octavius Granady, an African-American lawyer who had challenged Thompson's candidate for the African-American vote. So the African-American population in Chicago, it's pretty big, there's a pretty big African-American population in Chicago, and a lot of them are looking at voting for Octavius Granady instead of Thompson. Now, that's a problem. For Capone, because Capone wants Thompson to be mayor. So Granity was chased through the streets of Chicago by cars of gunmen before being shot dead. And Bel Castro was charged for this murder along with four police officers. But all charges were dropped when it was revealed that all four of these police officers, as well as Bel Castro, was working for Capone and all the witnesses to Granity's murder had recanted their statements because they don't want to go up against Capone. He's also connected to the murder of Assistant State Attorney William McSwiggan and Investigator Ben Newmark and didn't go to jail for any of these murders. In the background during this time, what's going on is that Masseria throws his support behind Capone. Now, if you watch my episode on Malazzo, this is a serious problem. Masseria comes from Sicilian background. He's not, he's in the north of Sicily, but he's from Sicily. And him taking Capone's back instead of Aiello's, it's a huge, huge, fuck you, right to his face. Like, excuse my French, but that's what it is. So Masseria goes to Malazzo, and he asks Malazzo to help have Aiello killed so that Capone can take over the Chicago syndicate. Malazzo is having none of it. Malazzo's a real one. He's got his boys. He, like, clutches his pearls and gasps in abhorrence that he's even asked to do this. And all this request did was further Malazzo's backing of Aiello. Malazzo was killed for this treasonous act of not killing Aiello on May 31st, 1930, and that starts a whole shitstorm in itself and is one of the pretty big contributing factors to the castella war happening in the first place. Now we're gonna go over the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was carried out in an answer to a shipment of alcohol that was coming in from Canada being hijacked in Illinois. Obviously, this is not all because of one shipment of alcohol. It was a lot of things. It was the fact that the Northside gang had tried to kill both Capone and Tadaro, it was the fact that they were continually coming at them. It was the fact that Aiello had teamed up with the Northside gang, and Aiello had just killed a really good friend of Capone's, Pasqualino Lolardo, for having the position at the head of the Union Siciliana. The Northside gang had carried out the assassination for Aiello, so now Capone is pissed, and it sets the stage for what's about to happen in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It occurred on the morning of February 14th, 1929. Capone at this time is in Florida and he can prove he's in Florida, so he would never be tied to the crime, but it's obvious to anybody that's looking from the outside in that this is all his doing. He set it up like nobody's stupid. Everybody knows what's going on here and everybody knows that Capone is the reason that this is all happening. The attack was carried out on the North Side gang with only one member of the North Side gang surviving the attack. Bugs Moran, who did not attend. Jaime Weiss and Vincent Drucci had died well before this time in the fighting between Capone's men and themselves over O'Banion's murder, so they're not present for this because they're already dead. Capone's men rented out an apartment across the street from the Northside gang's Center of Operations, and they dressed up as cops and carried out a fake raid. They lined seven people up as if they were going to frisk them, and then grabbed their machine guns and just lit this line of seven people up and killed every single one of them. After the St. Valentine's Day massacre, the public completely turned against Capone. He tried to clean up his image by opening a soup kitchen during the Great Depression, because obviously during the Great Depression there's a massive amount of Americans that are starving, they're not able to pay for food. But no matter what PR stunts Capone tried to pull off, the damage was done, and they hated him. One major fallout of the public turning against him was that Thompson, who was very publicly backed by Capone, lost the mayoral election, and Anton J. Cermak won. Nobody was ever prosecuted for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. If you're doing research on it, you'll see that it has since come to light that Capone very likely didn't order this hit, and then-President-elect Hoover, as well as the FBI team that was investigating Capone at the time, knew this, but refused to acknowledge that he was innocent. Now, I don't believe for one second that he was innocent. He did this. Nobody's stupid. Come on. But they say nowadays that he didn't actually do it, but he did it. Come on. Like, You really expect, you really think we're that stupid, we're not that stupid, Capone did it. The attack happened at the Northside Gang's garage at 2122 North Clark Street at around 10.30 in the morning on Valentine's Day. Four men approached the garage, two of them were dressed as police officers and two of them were dressed as normal but elegantly dressed civilians. Capone had just been informed of the $50,000 price on his head and of the fact that the Northside gang had planned to attack him to collect that bounty, and Capone was just pretty much acting first. Those killed included Johnny May, a mechanic that had been hired by Bugs, and he was unrelated to any of the gangland activity that went on. He had a wife and seven children, and a dog named Highball, who was at the shop that morning, tied to the axle of the truck. He was in greasy coveralls and he was working under a truck when the four men entered the garage, but he was lined up along with the other six people in the shop and was murdered. Frank and Peter Gusenberg were the brothers that murdered Lombardo in 1928 and killed Lolardo just a few weeks earlier, and they were the Northside gang's top hitmen. James Clark, also known as Albert Kachalak, was a convicted armed robber and reputed killer. This is another one of the men that Capone definitely did want killed. On January 19, 1929, Ketchalek, along with the Gusenberg brothers, had killed Patsy Lolardo and Elena Lolardo, his wife. Both of them were good friends of Capone's. A week after Lolardo's murder, the trio attempted to kill another Capone mobster, Jack Machine Gun McGurn. Adam Heyer, aka Frank Snyder, was an accountant and an embezzler. He was 40 years old, he had a wife, and he also had an ex-wife with a son from that marriage. He operated a dog track for Moran, did all the accounting for the gang, and he was the leaseholder for the building that he was killed in. Albert Weinshank was a nightclub owner, who most people believed that the gang thought was Moran himself. The attack started after Weinshank entered the garage, so it looks like they were all waiting on Moran to show, and they started killing them as soon as Weinshank entered, thinking that they had Moran. In all reality, Moran never made it to the warehouse that day. Well, he did. But by the time he got there, there was already police cars, so he about-faced and booked it. And he escaped this attack unharmed, which was an issue because this attack was orchestrated to get rid of Moran. And he was the only one that made it out. Wienchenk was a 36-year-old man who was married. He had a child in 1914, but his son passed away, so he had no living children. Reinhard H. Swimmer was an optometrist and he was an associate of the gang, mostly for optics and bragging rights. He liked how being connected to the mafia made him look, so he hung around them pretty much to be able to be like, oh yeah, I got friends in high places. He wasn't a gang associate, but I guarantee you, if he had been around long enough, he would have become one. He was 31 years old, he was divorced from his wife in 1923, He remarried a rich woman who divorced him soon after, and would regularly pretend to be in the alcohol business and would say that he could have anyone whacked if he wanted to. His optometry business was failing because of how much money he owed in gambling debts, and because of how much time he spent with the gang. His mom paid his rent, which was the only way that he was able to continually have a roof over his head. The only indication to neighbors that the machine gun fire that they heard was not just a backfiring car engine, was the terrified howls heard by Highball, a gorgeous German Shepherd who was left tied to the axle of the truck while his owner was slaughtered a few feet away. I hate to say it, I, I really do, because I know I'm gonna catch heat for this, but this is one of the saddest parts of the attack to me. Him and the mechanic. The mechanic was just doing his job, he had nothing to do with any criminal activity, he wasn't hanging around the gang for street cred, he was truly innocent, he was just doing his job. That is heartbreaking. But Highball was a German Shepherd, and if you're a dog person, you know that German Shepherds are one of the smartest dog breeds around. That's why they're so commonly used as police dogs, military dogs, service animals. They're just really smart and this poor dog definitely knew exactly what was happening and how much trauma he was enduring, so it breaks my heart to think of him tied up to an axle of a truck just sitting there and watching his owner get killed and crying and crying and crying until somebody came to help. It's so sad. He continued to howl until a neighbor came to check what was going on and he just stumbled on the bloody scene. Frank Gusenberg was still alive when the police arrived at the scene, but he died later at the hospital that day. When they asked him who had done it, he said it was police officers that had killed them. Everybody kind of assumed that he was just lying, but it looks like most likely he thought it was police officers because they were dressed as police officers. While the murders took place, Capone sat for an interview with a Brooklyn prosecutor, Louis Goldstein, who was investigating the murder of his old friend and mentor, Frankie Yale. Louis Goldstein lured him to an interview without a lawyer, promising only to interrogate him about Yale's murder, which Capone probably did order. But once the interview started, the real questions about his personal finances began and he became aware that the feds were starting to look into his taxes, which they had never done before. The newspapers printed the most graphic pictures of a crime scene in American media history, and this was enough to earn Capone a new nickname, Public Enemy Number 1. Tony Accardo was implicated in this massacre, as he was one of the people that carried it out, but he never got indicted on it. After the massacre, the Northside gang was weakened pretty drastically they pretty much didn't exist anymore. Moran was the only living member, but the fight with Aiello continued. Aiello convinced three of Capone's men, Albert and Salemi, John Scalise, and Joseph Giunta, to kill Capone and take over the syndicate. Capone beat them to death with a baseball bat, which is one of the most memorable actions and was featured in the movie The Untouchables, and he had his bodyguard, Tony Accardo, shoot them for good measure. When he learned that Aiello was behind the plot, he had Aiello killed by two snipers who were set up across the street from his apartment in Chicago. Aiello had promised to vacate Chicago, so the fact that he was there in the first place meant he was fair game, but they set up across the street from his apartment with a submachine gun and took him out. Joseph Chiunta was the current president of the Union Siciliana, and when Capone killed him, he left an opening as the leader. Aiello ended up getting that position and taking the position of the leader of the Union Siciliana. In the Chicago Syndicate, the leader of the Union Siciliana was like the boss of the Chicago family, so when Aiello took over the Union, he was the new boss of the Chicago family. Aiello was able to take control because Capone was not Sicilian, he was Neapolitan, and Aiello was from Sicily. He also had the backing of Gaspar Milazzo, which helped a lot, and he also had his alliance with Bugs Moran, that didn't hurt either. Regardless of these alliances, though, Capone still had a huge upper hand. Joe Masseria, the boss of bosses back in New York, backed Capone. Even though Masseria was from Sicily, and so was Aiello, it really never made sense to me why Masseria threw his backing behind Capone and not Aiello, but he did. Because of this massacre, the publisher of Chicago Daily News, Walter A. Strong, asked his friend, President Herbert Hoover, for a federal investigation to help with Chicago's severe criminal issue. They had a secret meeting that included the Chicago Crime Commission's Frank Loesch and Laird Bell, where Strong complained that Chicago is in the hands of the gangsters. The police and magistrates are completely under their control. Federal government is the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored. Hoover says that he immediately directed all federal agencies to concentrate upon Capone and his allies. Once Hoover directed all resources to solving this problem and getting rid of Capone, the Treasury and Justice Departments pooled their resources to arrest Capone for income tax evasion. Elliot Ness an agent of the Prohibition Bureau, led the investigation, and his group was dubbed the Untouchables by Chicago Daily News, as they were the only law enforcement after Capone that was unable to be corrupted, bribed, or threatened into complacency. Capone was arrested in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on May 16, 1929, for carrying a concealed weapon. At the time, the public was outraged that Chicago hadn't thought of this strategy to arrest him before this point. Like, how have you not arrested him for this yet? This man has been walking around with illegal weapons forever, and it took you up until this point to arrest him for it? He was sentenced to a year in prison for that illegal arms concealed weapon, whatever. When he got out in March 1930, he visited Miami, and in April of 1930, he was arrested for vagrancy charges when the governor ordered sheriffs to run him out of the state. They refused him food and water, and threatened to arrest his family if he didn't leave. He was charged with perjury for making these claims, but he was later acquitted of these charges, so more than likely that did happen. He was arrested in Chicago in September for vagrancy as well, And then in February of 1931, for contempt of court for just not showing up for court. He was sentenced to six months in jail, but he remained free while he appealed these charges. In February of 1930, Julius Rosenheim, who was a police informant, was killed, and Capone's group was thought to be involved in that murder. Ralph Capone was tried for tax evasion in 1930 and sentenced to three years in jail. On June 5, 1931, Capone was indicted on 22 counts of income tax after negotiations between his lawyers and the IRS failed. He had never once filed a tax return, but admitted to $100,000 in revenue for 1928 and 1929, and said that he was willing to pay taxes on that money. This gave the governor proof of income, and when negotiations went south, the government was probably never actually trying to negotiate. They wanted him off the streets. They were just trying to get evidence to be able to file criminal charges. The proof was already there he had been bargaining so the proof that he had made that money and not paid taxes on it was right there in front of them and they were able to bring it to trial capone was charged and released on $50,000 bail a week after being indicted elliot ness and his team seized and halted operations of breweries run by capone and this led to another indictment for 5,000 violations of the volstead act ness and his team Did have to fight for these convictions. Capone's men tried ceaselessly to bribe them, but they didn't get anywhere. Security measures were put in place around the breweries to spot the detectives. The squad's phones were tapped, a close friend of Ness's was brutally murdered, which led to Ness calling Capone personally, telling him to look out the window to see him parading 11 of his seized vehicles down the road, so this was personal for Ness. Capone's lawyers were able to negotiate a plea bargain with the prosecution where he would serve two and a half years if he pled guilty. However, when he pled guilty, the judge refused to honor the terms of this plea deal. And his lawyer, who had not put a case together because they had been relying on the plea bargain that everybody agreed on, had a week before the trial began. The violations of the Volstead Act were dropped and he was tried solely for the income tax evasion. Capone was found guilty and sentenced to 11 years in prison. He was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in May of 1932 at 33 years old where he was diagnosed officially with syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also in withdrawal from cocaine and had a perforated nasal septum from this addiction. So he had just been snorting so much coke that he literally put a hole in his nasal canal. Pay attention, boys and girls. That can happen. So every time you think like oh yeah this is no big deal i could just do this all day you can get a hole in your nasal canal and you will have that for the rest of your life do you want that no you don't let's stay away from drugs okay dare kids dare to be drug free he was transferred to Alcatraz federal penitentiary in august of 1934. in 1936 he was stabbed by another inmate james lucas But the injury wasn't that bad, he lived through it, everything was fine. He played in the Alcatraz Prison Band, which gave Sunday concerts. As his prison sentence came to an end, his health started to rapidly decline. He spent the last year of his sentence in a hospital wing, confused and disoriented, and diagnosed with neurosyphilis. He was paroled in 1939 due to his declining health and his reduced mental capacities. When he was released, he was sent to Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland for long-term, ongoing treatment. In 1942, penicillin was invented. The neurosyphilis had already done a major amount of damage to his brain, but the penicillin was able to cure the current syphilis and slow the progression of the neurosyphilis. I've never seen this written anywhere, I've never seen it talked about, but in the time between the last time I did this episode and now, I have had it on my mind a lot that I fully believe that the government gave him syphilis. I fully, fully, fully believe that they did that. I fully believe that they put a prostitute in his peripheral that had syphilis because they wanted to take him out. Syphilis was a weapon back then, and... Capone was always known as a criminal that they wanted to get rid of. I mean, prove me wrong. I just, I don't think you can. I'm fully convinced that the government killed Capone with syphilis. He went to live in Palm Island in Florida and was evaluated and found to have the mental capacity of a 12-year-old child. He had a stroke on January 21st, 1947, and later contracted bronchopneumonia. He had a heart attack on January 22nd and died on January 25th. Now, everybody and their mother knows who Al Capone is. You don't have to be into the mafia to know who Al Capone is. He's had numerous articles, books, and films portray him. When you think of a mafia guy, normally Al Capone is the one that comes to your mind. He's the pinnacle of mobsters, and I'm not even going to sit here and read off all the books, articles, and movies that have shown him as a mobster. So, what do you think about Al Capone in general and my Al Capone episode? Do you believe my theory that the government gave him syphilis? Do you think he deserved the amount of jail time that he got? What do you think he was up to between the time that he was released from prison and the time that he died? Do you think it was all an act that he was going crazy in order to get him out of prison? Let me know what you think in the comments below. Thanks for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things. And I'll see you next week. Bye.